Well, good morning, church. Nice. Y'all are getting it, man. man that, you guys give me with the espresso. I'm going to try to keep it brief today. We'll see what happens. Y'all gave me too much espresso just now. I like it. Everybody's laughing because they know me. I say that all the time. If you're new here, though, my name is Eric Solomon, and I get to serve here as the pastor at TVC. And I serve as well in our extended Wheaton Bible Church familia as a preaching pastor. TVC is a congregation of that family alongside our West Chicago and our Iglesia de Pueblo congregations. And if you're new, I don't want to just tell you who I am. I also want to say welcome. I'm really glad you're here. And if this is the first time you've been here in a while, we're really glad you're back to worship together with us. We're glad you're here this morning. Before we dive into the sermon, though, I want us to pray together for the preaching of God's word. Would you pray with me one more time? God, we thank you for giving us your word. As we sit under it together, we pray that you would illuminate your word. By your spirit and through me, would you uh, show us in your word what you have for us. Help us to not only understand it in our heads, but grab hold of it in our hearts. And would you change our lives and not just our beliefs with your word in the hands of your spirit and in the mouth of your preacher? Would you reveal our hearts to us? Would you heal us with your gospel? Would you humble us with your truth? Would you overwhelm us with your love? We entrust ourselves to you by submitting to your word together this morning. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts in this moment be filled with worship. For you, O Lord, are our rock and our redeemer. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ who saved us. Amen. Well, Mark Sidwell, in his book, Free Indeed, Heroes of of Black Christian History, tells the story of an African-Jamaican pastor in early 1800s Jamaica named Moses Hall. Pastor Hall and a number of African Christians who were uh, enslaved in Jamaica at the time had this regular habit of praying together even though their prayer meetings had been outlawed by their their slave masters. Bent on ending these meetings completely, a few slave owners interrupted one of those prayer meetings that were being led by one of Moses Hall's assistants, David, who was another slave. They they grabbed him, and they ended up violently murdering him and and leaving a, a warning in the center of the village to all the others, in a similar way to crucifying Jesus as a public warning. Now, after all this, they actually dragged Moses Hall up to the, 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 the warning that they had left there, and they asked, now, Moses Hall, who is this? Pastor Hall replied, David, do you know why he's up here? For praying, sir. No more of your prayer meetings. If we catch you at it, we shall serve you as we have served David. Then, as the crowd watched, Pastor Moses Hall knelt right there beside that warning, and he said, let us pray. The other black Christians, they gathered around, and they knelt with him as he prayed for the salvation of David's murderers. Faced with uh, hate and the threat of violence, Pastor Hall prayed, not because he was ignoring his present situation, but because he refused to ignore who was really in control, God the King. Whether we are praying while in danger or desperation or just praying driving on our way to work, like Pastor Hall, prayer must be the primary way that we remember what's really real. The way we remember who is really in charge, what is really going on as God continues to fix a world broken by sin. So my question this morning is, what does reality look like for you? 
Uh, what is it? Have you ever thought about the fact that prayer is this way of bringing you back to reality? Of, of realigning you, realigning us with the God who made us and, and saved us and is making us new. More often than not, maybe you're left wondering if prayer even really works. If it even matters. Well, this morning, we're going to dive into all of this by looking at the next trait of a biblical church, the power of prayer. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, we've been in this series that we've called Gospel Culture, and we've been looking at 12 traits of a biblical church. We started with the supremacy of the scriptures, as well as the the centrality of the gospel, as two of the most important traits in our series of, of a biblical church, because every other trait actually comes out of these two, the supremacy of the scriptures and the centrality of the gospel. And then last week, We looked at the the, the pleasure of worship where Pastor Jonathan actually helped us see past all of the different ways we can worship and focused our attention on the one we must worship, the only one who is truly worthy of our worship. But at this point in our series, we've established that a a biblical church must have its foundation in the Bible, its center in the gospel, and that, that our worship must be focused on God alone. But now we come to our next trait, complete dependence on prayer. One Old Testament scholar warns us what happens when we aren't dependent on prayer. And he writes this, to abandon prayer is to embrace atheism. Prayer is the difference between a group of people gathering to do nice things for other people and the church that trusts in and responds to the work of God in the world. To to say it a little bit more directly, prayer is essential to what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. If you just look throughout scripture, prayer shows up a whole heck of a lot, right? The the Bible records Jesus praying over 20 different times in the gospels. The apostle Paul mentions prayer over 40 times in his letters to all these these new baby churches that he's trying to, to grow in the gospel. In story after story, the Bible has people praying, sitting, standing, kneeling, face in the ground, tears soaking the carpet, standing up, arms reaching for heaven, People are praying together, they're praying alone, they're they're asking and they're thanking God, they're they're worshiping and they're they're believing, they're they're begging God to be just and punish evil, they're they're pleading with God on someone else's behalf. Church, the testimony of the Bible is that prayer is not just something that God's people do, it is who God's people are. At the core of who we are as Christians, we are people who pray. That's why. James, the brother of Jesus, chooses to end his letter on prayer. Not just as some kind of, hey, P.S., don't forget to pray. Just want to make sure we covered that. But because at the end of everything that he calls them to do, all the things he's calling them to be obedient to, what they need to remember most, what, what we need to remember most is that everything that we do is dependent on the God who has already done, on the God who saved us. And that's why we're in James 5 this morning. That we might see the necessity and power of prayer for both our own lives, but also for the life of our church family. To do that, I want to use the same format we've been using, right? If it ain't broke, don't fix it. So we're going to ask four questions, just like we've been doing. Here are my questions. Why pray? What makes prayer hard? What makes prayer possible? And what makes a prayerful church? 
Right? How does this passage in James 5 explain why we pray in the first place? And then how does James actually anticipate some of the problems that we face in prayer? And how does he answer those problems? What makes prayer not only something we do, but something we can do and something we should do? And more than anything as Christians, something that we cannot live without. And then we'll end on what that looks like for us as a church. Why pray? What makes prayer hard? What makes prayer possible? And what makes a prayerful church? So let's start with why. Why pray? When should you pray? Do you pray for everything? Or only the really important stuff? Now, I grew up in a church tradition where you prayed for absolutely everything and anything. Right? You need a job? You pray. You need money to make ends meet? You pray. You're worried about your citizenship test. You, you pray. You're, you're trying to get the closest spot to the store that you're at. You, you pray. You're not sure what to wear. You pray. You really don't want your son to play football. You pray. Big or small, every situation we had in our lives was an opportunity to pray. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't get dressed uh, 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 without praying. But I do think James wants us to consider prayer as more than just something we do on Sundays or before we eat. Right? It should be our default no matter what's going on. Look at the text, verse 13. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let him pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. Now, James's list here is not complete. But what it does communicate is something really important about prayer. It's for every situation, all of the time, no matter what's going on. Good or bad, pray. Troubled, happy, sick, pray. Now, different situations call for different kinds of prayer, but the question is not do we pray, but how do we pray? You pray for help. You pray with songs of praise. You ask the leadership of the church, the elders, to come and pray. Why pray? Because. Because you're in trouble. Or because you're happy. Or because you're sick. Or because you're worried. Or because you're grateful. Or because someone asked you to pray. Or because you are confused. Or because you are speechless on a hike that you went on. Or because you are grieving. Or because you are remembering God's work in your life. Why pray? Because fill in the blank with whatever specific reason you want. Why pray? Because ultimately we believe. We, we, we believe God is who he says he is and that he will do what he says he will do. And if he tells us to pray and he teaches us to pray and has proven over and over again in his word and in the life of our church community that he responds to prayer, then we pray because we believe him. Look at the text. In verse 14, James encourages people to ask the elders to pray and anoint them with oil. But he says something very specific there. How are they supposed to pray? Not just anointing them with oil, but in the name of the Lord. The, the power of prayer is not found in the people who pray or what they do when they pray. It is found in the one that they pray to. Right? The, the power of prayer is not prayer itself, but the God who listens and responds to the prayer of his people. Words matter. The, the community of God praying together matters. Even the symbolic acts that we do of oil or kneeling or arms raised or sitting, it all matters, but none of it guarantees 
that you get what you want. Because that's not the point. You see, prayer is not something that we perfect in order to get what we want. We, we cannot try to manipulate God into answering us or pressing all the right buttons or, or pulling all the right levers so that we can, quote unquote, win at prayer. He's not some kind of slot machine when, that you have to get just right to get your prayer answered. He, he's not just a, a vending machine that you have to make sure that you pay the right price and make the right selection for him to give you anything. Text is telling us we pray about everything and we pray in all kinds of ways, but not because we believe in prayer itself. We pray because we believe in Him. Why pray? Because we believe. Because prayer is the default response of the Christian to every situation and in every circumstance. But me just telling you that, I am perfectly aware of doesn't make prayer any easier. Right? The question why pray actually often becomes a reason not to pray. Even as I was thinking about this, these are questions that I, I, I think about myself and I answer a lot of the times with people. Why pray if God already knows everything? Or, or why pray if God is going to do what he wants? Right? We, we see in the Bible a God who is not only king but is all-knowing. He, he knows everything that there is to know everything that we're going to do. And as king, he does what he wants because as the Bible explains, he always knows best. So if all of that is true, Eric, why should I pray? Great question, everybody. If God already knows I'm in trouble or I'm happy or I'm sick, shouldn't he already be doing something about it? It, 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 maybe if I'm in trouble or I'm sick or, or, or I'm happy, it's because that's what God wants. So who am I to think that I could change that, change his mind? Allow me to suggest that the way to answer these particular questions is to flip them on their head. Why pray if God already knows everything? Because God knows everything. You see, prayer is not about trying to make sure that God knows what's going on. You want to make sure that he knows what's up, right? That you're trying to update him on your situation. We don't pray so that we can try to reveal to God what's happening. We pray because we are remembering what's really happening. Because God is revealing to us what is happening. And we are remembering that he is the one that's in control. That he is good and he knows best. And in prayer, we, we realign ourselves with him. Think about it like, like this. What do you do when you're driving down the highway and your, your car starts uh, veering to the left? And it, every, no matter how you fix it on your wheel, it just keeps going to the left. What do you got to do? You got to check your tire alignment. There's, there's something going on with your tires that's making you keep switching over to the left. Something is off and it's causing your car to drift to one side. In a fundamental way, Prayer works pretty similarly. It, it realigns us with God when we find ourselves pulled in one direction or the other. Right? Towards worry or fear or towards overconfidence and pride. When, when we feel pulled in one direction or another and we aren't sure what to do next. If, if we should take this or that job or, or move there or marry that person. Or maybe I'll get a little bit more personal when we feel our hearts are drifting towards insecurity about God's work in our lives or anger about how things are going or, or fear about obeying God and, and, and doing hard things and, and not knowing if you can do that. Why pray if God already knows everything? Because we don't know everything, and he does. 
And in prayer, we realign ourselves with reality. Or to say it more accurately, God realigns us with reality. But how about that second question? Why pray if God's going to do what he wants? If he's just going to align me to his will, he's going to do what he wants. I just kind of need to get with the program. You pray because he is going to do what he wants. That's why Jesus prays, not my will, but your will be done. But let me share something. I don't know how many people, when I found this out in the scriptures, I was like, wait, are you sure about this? One of the things that God wants is to respond to your prayers. God has set up the world and, and, and our relationship with him in such a way that he wants to respond to your prayers. And he does. Notice I didn't say answer your prayers in the way that you want them to. Not a vending machine, remember. But God's will is to respond to prayer. In his eternal wisdom, God has decided that he would change his mind based off of the prayers of his people. There are multiple stories in the scriptures where God does that. That he will do or not do something because his people have prayed. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that we are overriding God's will somehow, that we just kind of find the right formula and God just has to do what we say, as if we could do that. This is God we're talking about, right? But I am telling you that God loves to respond to prayer. Like a good father. That's who he is. Like, I don't know about you, but whenever a kid asks me for ice cream, I love to say yes because of how much they love getting ice cream. Unless they're lactose intolerant, and that's a whole other question. But I love to say yes when my girls ask me for ice cream. There's a delight in answering that request. God responds to us like a good father, delighting in responding to prayers. But I'll keep the illustration going and saying, he's also a good father who knows how to say no when you've asked for your third bowl of ice cream. Or when you ask for ice cream at the wrong time, like right before dinner. It's easy for us to believe this when we feel like God is blessing us. It's easy for children to be happy with their father when when they, they give them ice cream. It is not so easy. It is harder to understand what's happening when their father refuses them these things. Or or worse, when when he gives them vegetables or or medicine or disciplines them or a hundred other reasons that are good and right but are hard for a child to understand. In a similar way, we must hold on to the belief that God is good and that he's able to do all things, but in his wisdom and sometimes in his hard-to-understand wisdom, he does not do this and he does do that. And that's where we go back to prayer as realignment. Not just when we are off, but when we think God is off. Why pray? Because we believe and because Christians pray all the time in every situation. Because he knows everything and because he will always do what he wants. And he wants, the Bible teaches, to respond to the prayers of his people. Because we are in relationship with him. He is a good father. But those aren't the only reasons that prayer is hard. Those aren't even only the the, the deepest reason that prayer is hard. And that's why I want to get to that second question. I want you to look back at our text. There's a couple things that James says about prayer that we often twist into making prayer harder than it should be. So look at the uh, text, verse 15. What makes prayer hard? James continues, he says, the prayer offered in faith 
will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise them up. One of the things that makes prayer so hard is that we have made the mistake that God answering depends on us. That, that whether or not God does what we are asking depends not on his decision, but on our faith. That, that if we just have enough faith, God will heal. Or if we have enough faith, God will save our child. Or, or, or if we just believed enough, God will give us this job or that promotion. The danger is that we miss what the Bible says in other places about faith. It's, it's not the size of faith that matters, right? Faith the size of a mustard seed, which if you're not a farmer here, is very tiny, will move mountains. It is not the size of the faith that matters, but the object of the faith, right? And Paul even said God can do even more than all that we ask or think or imagine, God's answer to prayer is not based on having enough faith to make something happen, but having complete faith in the one who makes things happen. It's not about having enough faith to get an answer out of God, but having faith and trusting him for whatever answer he gives. James is not promising believers healing. He is reminding us of trust, of faith. Don't pray wondering if God is good enough to answer or strong enough to respond or wise enough to know what's best. Pray, trusting that what he does is good and wise and right, and that he's not only able, but he wants to give good gifts to his kids. And so if he doesn't give what, he, what we ask for, then he has a good and right, righteous reason. What makes prayer hard when we think it's up to us to make things happen? But it's not up to us. It's up to him. There's an old hymn and one hymn writer writes it like this. He says, Satan trembles when he sees the weakest saint upon his knees. It's not about our strength. It's about his strength. What, what, what makes prayer powerful is not how powerful we are, but how weak we are and how God responds in his power. It's not about uh, uh, making sure that you've figured out all the things that you need to do to get this outcome. It's about humble dependence upon God and prayer. What makes prayer hard when we forget who we're praying to? James keeps going. Verse 15. If they have sinned, they will be forgiven. Here's another thing that makes prayer hard. When we misunderstand sin. When we forget that sin is what kept us from God in the first place and that we still live in a world that's broken by sin and that, yes, even as Christians, we are still tempted by sin, that sin still affects us. You see, when we sin, even after we are Christians, what we're trying to do is effectively rebuild the wall that Jesus tore down between us and God and us and each other. We're, we're laying old bricks again trying to rebuild those, those walls of separation, and it matters. Yes, Jesus has forgiven us, but that's also why Christians still confess and repent of their sins over and over and over again. Not because we just need to convince ourselves that we are saved, but because we are saved, but we still live in a broken world, we know that Jesus is still making us new. And yes, sin sometimes, even according to James and other places in the text, affects us not just spiritually, but physically. Now, I'm not going to get into all of this, but I also want to make it very clear from this text 
what James is actually saying about if they have sinned, then they will be healed and kind of the connection to sickness. Because the main word there for me is if. You see, sometimes we do uh, uh, bad math, and I'm not just talking about like pastor math. I'm doing bad math where we say this situation, there is uh, uh, sickness, and therefore that means that before that, there was sin that led to this sickness. One plus one equals three somehow. But James writes, if they have sinned. Meaning that just because someone is sick, it does not mean that they have sinned. If God has not answered our prayer, it is possible that there is sin in our lives, but it is not for sure. What makes prayer hard is that we fall to one of these two extremes. We think too much of sin and believe that all unanswered prayer is evidence that there is some unrepentant sin in our life and we just got to figure out what that is. Or we think too little of sin and we believe that how we live does not actually affect our relationship with God. What makes prayer hard? Sin does. Sin is what makes prayer hard. An author, Richard Lovelace, in his book on the dynamics of spiritual life, explains it like this, talking about a Puritan named Thomas Goodwin. He says, the Puritan Thomas Goodwin points out that our fallen nature is actually allergic to God and never wants to get too close to him. Thus, our fallen nature constantly pulls us away from prayer. You see, it's not only that we have misunderstood sin, but that we also got to recognize we are still in the process of being healed from sin. We are forgiven, and sin no longer keeps us from God, but we are still works in progress. God is still at work healing our hearts and our souls and our minds, and yes, even our bodies from the destruction that sin has caused. God is still in the process of healing the allergy that our fallen, sinful, old way of life has built up over time to our creator king. This is why prayer is so hard. Because it no longer comes natural to us to want to talk with God like our ancestors did in the garden. And this is why James writes at the beginning of verse 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and and pray for each other so that you may be healed. You see, sin not only messes with our understanding of prayer, it also messes with prayer itself. And this is why staying centered on the gospel is so important. Because the gospel is the only solution to the problem of sin. Not just with our lives before Christ, but with our lives in Christ. You see, sin keeps us from God. It is what blew and impossible to close whole in our relationship with our creator. It is what what has set ticking time bombs in every single one of our relationships with each other that will at some point be triggered. It is what still tries to blow up our relationship with God even after we believe in Jesus. And yet God is in the business of not only repairing the destruction of sin, but defusing all of the explosive material that sin has left behind, including our resistance to speak with the one who made us and loves us and saved us. And he did all of that through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what makes prayer hard is also part of what makes prayer possible. Look at what James says in the second half of 16. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Now, this, I want to be very clear, is an after Jesus kind of statement. This is not, your prayers are more powerful the more righteous you are. As if there's some kind of ladder that, that Christians have to keep kind of climbing to make sure they get their prayers answered. This is a truth that's filled with the gospel. After all, how are we made righteous? By the blood of Jesus. 
to jump out of James for a second, Hebrews 10 explains it like this, and it talks about what makes prayer possible even in this passage. He says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, this is what we're doing when we pray, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, what used to separate, that is, Jesus' body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. The blood of Jesus gives us confidence to approach God. It, it, it opens the door to come near to God, and it does all of this by changing our hearts, by, by cleaning us, by convincing us that everything really has been fixed and we no longer need to fear judgment because Jesus has taken that judgment on himself, that punishment on his body. We are free, not just from judgment, but from sin itself. We no longer have to say yes to sin and no to God. Now we can say no to sin and yes to God. And all of that is not just something we believe, but something we live out when we pray. By, by actually approaching God in prayer like he is our father and not our enemy. What makes prayer hard is sin, but what makes prayer possible is Jesus. The, 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 the privilege of prayer is possible because Jesus' blood was poured out for us. In other words, like I've said before, prayer is a blood-bought privilege for the Christian. It, it, it's, it's not just a spiritual practice we're supposed to do. In fact, I'll even go further. It is the second half of a conversation. Right? God speaks to us by his spirit in his word, and we speak back to him in prayer. Prayer is, is, is the way we actually enjoy the relationship Jesus died for us to have with God. That it is the way we actually believe what the Bible says about God, that, that, that he wants us to pray because he wants us to be in relationship with him. It is, it is how we say that we actually trust the gospel because it says that we are able to freely enjoy the relationship that Jesus paid for us to have with God, to approach God in his throne room without fear of judgment, but in the joy of freedom. This is ultimately why we pray. Yes, we pray because that's what Christians do. We, 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 Christians pray. Yes, we pray because no matter what comes our way, the first right response, the default response as always, should be to pray. But ultimately, we pray because Jesus brought us back into relationship with God, and prayer is the way we actually enjoy that relationship. The way we turn a one-way communication of the Bible into a two-way conversation with our Father. Prayer is hard because of sin, but it is possible because of the gospel that says that our sins have been paid for. Even the new ones that keep trying to get in the way of that relationship. But I don't want to just talk about prayer being hard and prayer being possible. I also want to talk about what it means for us to pray as a church. What it means to be a prayerful church. And the last few verses of James actually help us out here. They give us an, an illustration and then a big picture reminder. Look at the last few verses, 17 through 20. Elijah was a human being even as we are. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. Here's the illustration James gives. The prophet Elijah. <laughs> One of the most important and powerful prophets in the history of God's people, and James uses this guy as a comparison. Cue my prayer insecurities. Right? I mean, who was going to pray like a prophet that called down fire from heaven? 
I mean, even in this illustration, James is talking about something supernatural. Elijah prayed to start and end a three and a half year drought in the land. He, he prayed that it would stop raining and it did. Like, like no more rain, not just like coincidence, the storm went away. Like not going to rain, not just for a day, not just for a week, not just for a month, not just for a season, for years. And then he prayed that it would start raining again. And the clouds didn't have to slowly build. The climate didn't have to adjust. The water cycle didn't have to start up again. Elijah prayed and God made it rain. But context matters. Look at how James is actually using Elijah as an illustration. Because he was a human being like we are. And he prayed earnestly. A a, a prayerful church is filled with human beings who pray like they mean it. Real simple. Not just because they have to, or because they, they just really want something, but because they actually believe God is who he says he is and will do what he says he would do. And he says he will respond to the prayers of his people. Now here's the big picture reminder that James gives us in the next two verses. And then we'll get into some really practical applications of this. James writes in verse 19, My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of their way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, if you're reading the book of James and you get to the end and you read about prayer and then you get to this and you're like, this feels like a sharp right turn. Where is James going with this? I want you to remember that this is actually at the end of this letter. This is how James is choosing to close his letter, by by focusing on prayer after he has talked about command after command after command to actually do something, right? This is the same letter where we read that faith without works is dead. Do something. Unfortunately, like I imagine James is uh, the congregation he's writing to, or even us, many of us would not put prayer in that category of something, of doing something. But not James. For James, for God, for God's people, prayer is the most important thing we can do. Notice, I didn't say the only thing we do. But it is certainly the most important thing we do because in prayer, we show that we are not self made, pull up yourself from your bootstraps kind of Christians. In prayer, we are loud and clear that we are completely dependent on God, that, that we can do nothing apart from Him, like Jesus tells us. That, that, that we may plant and we may water, but it is God who brings the growth, like Paul tells us. So why does James turn to talking about sinners and salvation and, and sin? Because we're not islands. We're not lone rangers. Christians need each other, not just in general, but specifically and daily. And God has specifically made that happen in his church, in a local church body. And it's not just for like daily and relational needs, although it is for that. But in some mysterious way, James is saying it's also for our deepest spiritual needs. And the only way to get something done spiritually is to pray. What makes a prayerful church? It's a church that prays because the only way to get anything done, we believe and we live out that the only way to get anything done is through prayer. Without prayer, we con ourselves into thinking that we are the ones who save people. We are the ones who make people grow. We would never say that, but we certainly act like it when we just try to get a bunch of things that 
get people in the door or make sure we do this or make sure we do that. A prayerful church is a church that aligns itself with God's definitions and God's measurement of success because it is a church that realigns itself in prayer with God. Let me give you those practical applications that was promising you that comes out of these verses and really the whole text. Like the Elijah illustration we were talking about, when we pray, one of the first things we need to do is we need to pray like we're human. Like we are dependent and we are created. It is a posture we need to have in prayer, but also a, a, a way that we need to live that out when we pray, recognizing that we are not the ones who make things happen, that God is the one who does that. But we also need to pray like we're his children. We're not, we're not trying to convince him to be good and just and kind and compassionate and gentle. He is all of that and so much more. We, we aren't trying to get him on our side. We aren't trying to manipulate him. We pray out of trust rather than suspicion, which is why we also have to pray like he's God, like he is the king, wise, powerful, and good. A pastor friend of mine reminds me of this often. He says, where God guides, God provides. And so we pray that we might follow his guidance rather than trying to make something happen on our own. Pray like you're human and pray like he's God. But we also do this both alone and together. Now I'm going to use something, a little bit of a personal illustration because it's something that I've recently started doing. But I'm always nervous about using this stuff because I really, really don't want you to be like, man, Eric's super spiritual. So I'm going to give you a warning before I do this. I didn't just start doing this. I'm also not really great at doing this, so I'm trying to do this better. Fair? Everybody said amen? amen? All right. One of the things that I'm doing to try to pray like I'm human is admitting that if I don't plan to pray, I'm just not going to do it. Right? Like, like anything good in life, prayer is something that we need to, to actually practice, and we need to do it over and over again. We need to build the habit of prayer, but we need to plan in order to do that. And so for me, one of the ways that I, I, I do that is by praying about specific things in specific places at specific times. Here's what I mean by that. The moment I wake up in the morning, what is the first thing that I do? I grab my phone. Don't judge me. I want to change that habit. It's hard. I could just take my phone out of my room, yes. But one of the things that I've tried doing is when I, whenever I grab my phone, instead of scrolling, I actually stop. And I pray. Before I get out of bed, I pray. It's, it's my, I have to get out of bed and tackle the day, so help me, Lord, prayer. So it's short and simple, nothing fancy. But it starts my day focused on God and aware of, of myself and my resistance to doing what, what's good for me, like getting out of bed. But then when I get in the shower, I pray for my family. Now, showering is something I do every day. The church said, Amen. It's, it's good and right. But during that time, I have, it's, a, it's a habit that I do regularly that I'm attaching with the new habit I want to do. I want to pray. So when I get in the shower, I pray for my family. I pray for, for Jocelyn. I pray for Lucia. I pray for Liliana. I pray that the day would be really good and that I would not get home to all the screaming and the, the crazy that tends to happen with the four-year-old and the two-year-old. I pray all those things in the shower. And then when, I, when I'm heading off to work, when I'm driving to my office, I pray for my day and what the Lord has for me, that I might be responsive to the things that he's going to bring and interrupt my day, that I might not be annoyed that it wasn't my calendar. And then when I sit down at my desk and I look at all my projects and the things I have to do before I start, I pray for you. 
I pray for the church. I pray for what the Lord is going to do in and through us as a community. I pray for different things. Sometimes I don't even get started for a while because there's a lot of things that the Lord is putting on my heart to pray. Now, I say all that, and again, this is, you can hear why I'm worried about this. I'm not great at this, right? Sometimes I, I, I grab my phone and I forget that I was wanting to pray, and then I scroll, and by the time I'm done, I was like, I got to get in the shower. And then I get in the shower, and I'm super worried about everything that's in that day, and so then I don't actually stop to pray. And then I'm driving to work, and I'm trying to make sure all my projects and my tasks are all in my head, and then I sit down at my desk, and I have to get to a meeting, and, and I don't pray. But I'm not after perfection. I'm after practice practicing prayer regularly. How about you? How can you combine time, place, and your prayer list to build a habit of prayer in your own life? But even as I give you this application, it's not just for you alone. Right? Remember my fourth question. I purposely didn't say, hey, what makes a prayerful person and a prayerful church? Because a prayerful church is made up of prayerful persons. So here's what I want us to do as a church family together. I want us as a community to default to prayer. Now, I recognize that me just saying that, you're like, cool, got it, Eric, I know what I'm doing. That I have to explain that, but it's also a culture we're going to have to build. What I mean by that is that after the service, if someone's like, hey, yeah, I'm actually going through this in my life, and you say, instead of saying, hey, yeah, I'll pray for you, you stop and take a minute and you pray. What I mean by that is that, that you, uh, when we're considering anything new as a church, any new ministry or any new thing we're going to be part of, or any new way to love our neighbors, we don't just jump in because it's a good idea. We stop and we pray. And we respond to what God is doing. What I mean by that is that we commit on Sunday mornings to participate in prayer together. You see, when, when Melissa or I or anybody's up here praying, you're not just like watching. Right? This isn't some kind of performance like it's a concert. You are participating in that prayer. That's why we say, let's pray together, or will you pray with me? It's committing to actually being part of that prayer on Sunday mornings and also being part of our prayer meetings once a month. Not just because you need a new program to be a part of and we just need you to come to church, but because we as a community really want to pray regularly and build up that habit. So whenever you're able to, we want to pray together in the same place, specific place, specific time. The third Wednesday of every month, 7 p.m., and pray through specific prayer lists. We pray alone and we pray together. But my applications aren't done. I got a lot of things that I'm trying to, to get in here this morning, and I apologize, but this is one of my favorite things to talk about. Because I really believe, not just in the power of prayer, but in the one we're praying to. So here's my last two. I want to encourage us to pray a lot and to pray about more. Like James says, are you in trouble? Are you happy? Are you sick? Pray about anything and everything, alone and together, right? Because what, what we want to build is a, a prayer life, not just a prayer list. Nothing is too silly to pray about. The goal is not that God would tell you what to wear or give you a parking spot. The goal is relationship. And you build relationship by being with each other a whole heck of a lot. Which is also why we need to pray about more. So I'm not just saying throw out your prayer list. I'm saying that your prayer list actually matters. And we need to pray for people who are struggling with sickness and we're struggling with God to provide. But we also need to pray about our neighborhood and God's work in saving our neighbors and bringing peace to our community. We need to pray for our church family to be who God has saved us to be, a light and a safe place for broken sinners. We, like us, let me pause and say that, broken sinners like us, 
We need to pray for God to raise up godly leaders to love and shepherd us here. We, we need to pray for God's glory to be seen not just in our community, but all over the world as well. Our prayer list is, is all these things and even more. Because prayer is also not only about asking. Right? The Lord's prayer doesn't even start with requests. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. The Lord's prayer, prayer starts with worship. That's why when James says, sing songs of praise, I call that prayer. And then it even doesn't get to personal requests. It says, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Pray a lot and pray about more. To help, I've got more book recommendations for you. And God said, God's people said, yeah. Yeah, so happy. Now, I'm doing this not just because I love books, um, but because these books have helped me understand prayer better and practice prayer better. So I'm just going to give these to you. Do with them what you will. If you want me to buy them for you, I will do that, 100%. I will spend my money for you to read. Promise. So here are my first two books. Prayer, Experiencing on Intimacy with God by Tim Keller. And Prayer, How Praying Together Shapes the Church by John Anuchekwa. Both of these books have helped me get a fuller picture of what the Bible has to say about prayer, right? It's not just their ideas, like, hey, here's what I think about. They're going back to Scripture. But they also understand deeply not just what prayer is, but why we struggle so much in prayer. Like, they're not just like, hey, do more. So it was helpful for my soul to get gospel understanding of what prayer is. They also give practical things in there, but the next two books are the ones that are more practical for us. So I just don't want us to understand prayer, but I also want us to actually pray. So here are my next two. Face to Face, Praying the Scriptures for Intimate Worship by Kenneth Boa, and Five Things to Pray for Your Church by Rachel Jones. Now, Face to Face is one of my favorite books because it's basically Scripture, so I don't know how, I, like, how this guy got the licensing. because all, all he did was change the pronouns in Scripture so that you can pray them back to God. But that's why it's so helpful, because it's just days and days of praying Scripture. Funny story about this book, I was like showing it at one of the prayer meetings, and one of the little ones actually was like, can I, can I take one? And this is the book he took, so I've got to buy my, a new copy. But it's awesome. That's how much I love this book. The second book, Five Things to Pray for Your Church, it sounds a little self-serving, but it's not actually. Because the author goes through different ways to pray for your church family, right? In a, in a bunch of different ways, right? So, so we, that we would remember who we are, that we would grow together, and, and kind of the normal ways that we would love and serve each other, be generous. But then things like we might use our gifts well, that we might uh, actually be who our church family needs us to be, not just who we want to be. She goes through different lists of people to pray for, things you would, like, like church leaders, but then also different things that you're like, oh, I didn't think about praying for those people in our church family. She reminds us to pray for churches that are near as well as churches that are all over the world. So again, the first two books are much more about understanding what's happening. And the next two books are much more about practicing what's happening. But all four of them I commend to you, right? So can we go back to the earlier slide really quick? Tim Keller, Prayer, Experiencing on Intimacy with God. And then Prayer by John Onuchekwa, How Praying Together Shapes the Church. And then the next two, Face to Face, Praying the Scriptures for Intimate Worship by Kenneth Boa. And Five Things to Pray for Your Church by Rachel Jones. All of these books, except for the Keller book, are super tiny. So that, that's my gift to you. They're very tiny books. The best thing about prayer, even as I say all this, is that, that prayer doesn't have to be perfect in order for it to be fruitful. It just has to be done. Right, right. Prayer is essential in the life of every Christian and in the life of the church, but, but you don't have to make sure you have the right formula in order for prayer to be effective. You already have the right formula. James says, the prayer of a righteous person. Jesus has made you righteous, and therefore when you pray, the Lord responds. 
Now, there's a quote that I want to end on that's gone around for a really long time now, and it's hard to actually pinpoint where it comes from. Um, uh, I got this from that, one of those books, John Onichekwa's book. And he says, Google failed him in trying to figure out who this is. Some say it's the pastor who started the Reformation, Martin Luther. Others say it's the pastor who started the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King Jr., who led the civil rights movement, didn't start it. Here it is. To be a Christian without prayer is no more possible than to be alive without breathing. This is why this is such an essential trait of a biblical church. Because prayer is the oxygen of the Christian life. It is oxygen that has been made possible only by the life-giving death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And before we approach communion, I want to call you to breathe like you're a Christian. I want to call you to pray together and alone. That we might not just have lots of prayer lists, but prayerful lives. The only reason we can even have those, though, is why we're celebrating communion together. To remember what it is that gave us oxygen and life in the first place. The gospel. Communion is, is, is a community reminder of what Jesus has done to save us and make us into family. And yes, to buy the privilege for us to be able to pray freely before the God who has saved us. Communion is this practice that's given by Jesus to his church for our good. And so if you don't have one of these, you can... Raise your hand, we'll bring them to you. But if you have them, we're about to take communion together. This is a, a rhythm that we're participating in together that proclaims the message of the gospel to us visibly. So receiving this, this sealed cup, I, I, th these are a symbol for a much greater reality. Now, as I lead us in taking this, we're gonna, I want to do it together as a family. And I know that these cups can be tricky to open. So I want to give us some time to open both the bread and the cup. So I'm going to pause for all the crinkling to happen, and then we'll go through. So if you want to open both, we'll do that now so that we can take them together. All right, ready? I want you to listen to these words from Matthew. It's okay if you keep crinkling, it's all right. I want you to listen to these words from Matthew 26, 26 through 28. Jesus gave us this reminding and gospel-shaping gift of communion, and he says, While they were eating, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Every time we participate in communion, we are reenacting that evening with Jesus and his disciples. We, we are re-entering the story and we are reminding ourselves of what Jesus has done. Giving his body to be broken, pouring out his blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. And so whenever we do this together, we're actually preaching the gospel to each other. The humbling and hope-filled gospel that says, I already know the worst thing about you and I already know the best thing about you. That you were bad enough that Jesus had to die for you and that you were loved enough that he actually did it. So as we approach the table together, I want us to approach humbly confessing and repenting of our sins and filled with hope at the forgiveness that Jesus promises us. So I'm going to invite us into a silent time of confession together and then remind us together of the assurance of forgiveness that we have in Christ. But as we confess, if you're here and, and, and you haven't actually done that, you, you haven't actually come to Jesus, that you actually don't know Jesus or, or actually have known Jesus and feel like, man, I just have walked away. 
I'm inviting you this morning to confess your sins with us. To confess that you cannot save yourself and that you, you want to believe that what he did on the cross counts for your sins. To receive his forgiveness. Right? Communion is for those who have already done this, who have believed in Jesus as the one who has rescued them from sin, who, who rules their life as king. And so if you haven't done that yet, I'm inviting you to confess with us, but to confess and believe that Jesus has saved you. That he is the only true king. And then I want you to take and eat with us and drink with us and celebrate what Jesus has done. And then most of all, I want you to come afterwards and talk to me because I would love to celebrate with you too. So let's take a time, silently confess before our God, and I'll break that silence with a prayer of confession and assurance of forgiveness. Jesus, we want to thank you for saving us from our sins. Would you receive the confession of your people? Would you remind us once again of the unlimited forgiveness that's available because of what you did on the cross? As we take and eat this bread, would you remind us that we are forgiven and that all we need to do is confess and you, you, you pour out your mercy on us because of what Jesus has done. We receive and believe that you have certainly forgiven us not because of our own works, but because of the finished work of Christ on the cross. I pray all these things in your name. Amen. Let's hold up the bread together. Jesus commands us in 1 Corinthians 11 to remember the gospel with these words. This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let's eat and remember together. Jesus, you, uh, you let yourself be killed for us. You were broken for us. You, get, you gave your life for us. And it is your blood that cleanses us from all sin, as we read earlier. Your word says that your blood is more precious than silver or gold, that you bought us back from slavery to sin with your blood. And so this morning, as we raise and drink from this cup, would you remind us what your salvation cost? Remind us of how precious we are to you. Remind us and shape us as blood-bought people who have the blood-bought privilege to pray in the freedom that you have paid for us to have. We pray all these things in your son's name. Amen. Well, let's raise the cup together. Jesus continues in that same chapter and tells us this. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. Let's drink and remember together. We not only remember when we participate in communion, Jesus also tells us that whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim his death until he comes. Let's pray that we might continue to proclaim that with both our words and our actions, with our whole lives. Would you pray with me? Holy God, loving Father, compassionate 
Christ-empowering spirit, this morning we remember and we proclaim together your gospel. We remind one another of what the death of Christ means for our lives and for our family and for the neighborhoods that you have placed us in. May we not only remember, but proclaim your death until you come. Proclaim your resurrection until you return. Would you continue to work in us and through us to communicate your love and your grace and your mercy and your holiness and your righteousness and your justice everywhere we go. We pray that you would continue to grow us and that you would continue to grow the churches in our community in the gospel. So this morning, alongside praying for our church family, I pray specifically for the Village Church of Bartlett and Christ community in Streamwood. Would you continue to make us and our brothers and sisters there individually and together more like Jesus? Would you keep them from division or gossip but continue to cultivate the fruit of spirit, the Spirit among them and among us? We might all be loving and joyful, peacemakers, patient, kind, and deeply good and faithful and gentle and filled with self-control. Would you continue to testify to your gospel through us and through them and bring more and more people into your family, saving people and making people new through all of these different church communities? Like we're about to sing, it is a privilege to carry all these things to you in prayer. And we are grateful that we have such a friend in you, Jesus. And so we pray all these things trusting in you. In the precious name of Jesus and the blood that has paid for our sins and the resurrection that <sighs> proclaims to us new life. Pray all these things.